Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. This time around, I'm pulling out an interview I did a few years back with Tony Arada. Since then, he has been inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. Tony Arada has written many, many songs, but he's most known for writing the song, The Dance. I think it's safe to say The Dance is the signature song of Garth Brooks, the number one hit for Garth back in 1990. He's written a few other songs, like the number one hit song, Dreaming With My Eyes Open, which was recorded by Clay Walker. And there have been a lot of artists who have recorded the songs of Tony Arada. Just to name a few, Patti Loveless, Trisha Yearwood, Emmylou Harris, the late Don Williams, I believe Bonnie Raitt. Anyhow, I got the chance to see Tony Arada perform at Eddie Zadok in Decatur, Georgia. And let me just tell you, if anyone has heard Tony Arada, the writer of the dance, perform that song, it's something you will never forget. He was kind enough to catch up with me on the telephone after that concert. It was a Writers in the Round. There were some other great artists there, like Janice Ian, Gretchen Peters, who has since been a guest on the show. I think you're going to enjoy. This was originally broadcast on the radio, and now I'm presenting it to you all. Ladies and gentlemen, it's with great pleasure that we welcome our guest, Tony Arada. Morning, Paul. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing just great. Thank you. It's, we've actually had a reprieve from the heat up here in Nashville over the last few days, so that's been nice. Yeah, same down here. Well, tell us, for all the listeners out there, wherever they're listening, who is Tony Arata? <laughs> well, I wonder that myself sometimes, Paul. <laughs> uh, no, I, my wife and I moved here in 1986 from Savannah, Georgia and moved to Nashville expressly to pursue songwriting. So we've been here since then, and we've been very fortunate. I've, a lot of people move here and want to be an artist and want to go that route. I never wanted to do anything but be a songwriter. And so I feel very grateful to have been able to stay here as long as, a, as we have, with that being the, the sole source of our income. When you were growing up, were there specific recordings or specific bands that you especially liked? Well, I was very fortunate. I was the baby of the family. I had a bunch of older siblings. My brother was older. My older sisters had three older sisters. And so they they had wonderful album collections. And when they weren't around, baby brother would sneak in there and help himself to, to their, their wonderful collections. My mom and daddy had me very late in life, so they were from a completely different era so I, I i was very lucky to grow up listening to everything from glenn miller and and vaughn monroe and the big band stuff and nat king cole all the way to my brother's collection of buddy holly and otis redding and my sisters with the beatles and stones so it was a pretty diverse education growing up i grew up on a little place called tybee island georgia which is just it's the it's the beach community there outside savannah i couldn't say that there was one particular you know influence it was more of 
because I've had so many things to choose from, I was exposed to it in a wide variety. So I'm very grateful for that as well because I wound up writing songs that had been recorded by country artists, but I can't say for a like so many try to do, that I grew up listening to only country music because I, I didn't. With what you said that your parents were listening to and having been born in Savannah and growing up on Tybee Island, I have to wonder, were you very aware of Johnny Mercer growing up? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, he's a fixture, you know. I jokingly refer to him as the other songwriter from Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I was, of course, very familiar with invariably you start turning over these albums and you back when they actually used to list who wrote songs and you'd see him and you'd see the Mercer name and you'd see Richard Rogers and you'd see any number of people that he collaborated with and so it really opened my eyes to the fact and also it was a good education for me to witness songwriting from that standpoint because back then I mean the old school of writing I mean co-writing here in Nashville is so prevalent but co-writing Back in that time was a completely different issue. You had, you take the Gershwins, you know, Ira wrote the words and George wrote the, the melodies and the music. And so you got 100% of both and made for very, very memorable songs. Matter of fact, the day before, we had the truck all packed and Jamie and I were going to be leaving for Nashville the next morning. And we took a visit to a place called the Great Savannah Exposition in downtown Savannah. Hanging there very prominently on the wall is the typed lyric to the Days of Wine and Roses. And it was accompanied to a, with a letter that Johnny Mercer had written to Bing Crosby. And he was asking Bing if he thought these lyrics were any good. And <laughs> I remember thinking, if Mercer is worried about those lyrics, I don't know what in the world we're doing moving to Nashville. I mean, if, if that's not good enough, we might do better to just stay put. <laughs> Tell us, can you recollect the first song you ever composed? <laughs> well, not very fondly, I can't. <laughs> I think only the people who are delusional think that everything they write is good. Writing, like everything else, is, is a craft that you learn over time. I started writing in earnest, I guess, my sophomore year of college. I graduated from Georgia Southern University down in Statesboro, Georgia. And I guess that's when I really started writing. And back then, they were just college sing-along beer-drinking songs. And you were taking your life in your own hands doing original music in some of these bars because people, all they want to hear is covers. Some of those were, I'd rather forget. But, you know, you have to write all those to get to the ones, that, the, the, the few that you're proud of. It's all a long process. I don't think anybody, maybe Johnny Mercer started off great. That's very possible. Very few do. So, I mean, I'm still learning. And, I'm, and I still, every day, pay attention to things that I hear my daughters listening to. That they're ones in college and ones of almost graduating from high school. So I got that that side going with all their the youth music, and then I listen to country radio. Invariably, you'll hear something and you'll go, "Why in the world did I not think of that?" I mean, it's so obvious. It's a long process. Back when you were performing at those kind of gigs. Do you think that that experience of kind of getting right in there and, and seeing people up close, do you think that that had an effect on your songwriting today? Well, yeah. I think the biggest connection that was made, Paul, is the fact that people became enamored of some of those songs. They felt like they were part of it because they, were, they had heard them for the first time, and, 
and they weren't songs that they were going to be able to hear on the radio. So it made a connection with me that songs don't come from the radio. They don't come from albums. They come from writers. You know, they, they come from people. And so it, it gave me, I guess, a certain amount of courage to, to take the abuse that you get when you try to write or perform an original song, but also the true pride that you take when somebody makes the connection with something that yesterday wasn't there that you created and, and you make a connection with another person over something that you wrote. It was a wonderful experience, and I, you have to make a decision if you're going to write songs. I mean, you're, you're just going to have to get out there and play them for people and, and be willing to take the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, that comes with it. And then when we first moved here, I was writing, I was truly writing songs at that point. I mean, I was trying very desperately to come up with something that I thought would appeal to artists. But there again, it was a long, it was a long process. I mean, we were here, we moved here in '86. Ironically, the very first thing we ever had, I ever had recorded was the dance that Garth Brooks did, which was written just weeks after we moved here and was turned down by everybody over and over and over. So it wasn't until 1989 that, that he got his record deal and the song came out. That's incredible. I, I can't imagine anybody turning down the dance. Tell us what well, inspired that song. Well, I've said this many times. It actually, I had the melody for a long time, and it, and it had a completely different set of lyrics. That had those lyrics ever been released, <laughs> we wouldn't be having this conversation. Let's put it that way. I knew the words. I didn't like the words. I, I liked the melody. Quite honestly, Paul, I, I went to see a movie it was called Peggy Sue Got Married. I don't know if you remember it or not, but uh, it was Nick Cage and Kathleen Turner. She goes back in time, and with all the knowledge of what happened to her in the years that ahead. And so when she is asked to marry Nick Cave, when he asked her to marry him, she says no because she knows how dreadful it all turned out. I mean, it, it just, it, you know, she knew what a cat he was, and she wasn't about to make the same mistake twice. But the problem is, is there was a locket around her neck, and the pictures of her children weren't in there anymore. And it was a scene that struck me so strongly that she doesn't marry him, she doesn't get her kids. You don't get to pick and choose your memories. Life is not about planning everything out. It just, a lot of it just happens. That scene struck me very, very poignantly. I went home and the next day and, and wrote the, the lyrics that are now the dance in just a matter of maybe 30 minutes. Because I, then I knew what the song was supposed to be about. And once you know where it ends, you, you have a better chance of knowing where to start. Uh, it was, oddly enough, it was turned down by a great many people. And I, you never know, there again, I mean, <laughs> talking about how you just have to accept the things that are dealt to you, I mean, and, and go with certain things in life that you just have to live with. Uh, I think now, I mean, um, had some of those people that turned it down done the song, there I have... Absolutely no doubt we wouldn't be having this conversation because I think the person who was supposed to do that song did it. Garth, from the first time he heard it, we did an open mic show with the Bluebird. I knew him as a songwriter. He moved here the same time we did. I got to know him as a friend. And it was the minute I played this song, he came up to me and he said, if, if I ever get a record deal, pal, I'm going to do that song. I'll never forget that. I mean, it was just such a, a wonderful thing to have another songwriter say something like that about one of your songs. 
course, at the time, he didn't have a record deal, but it was still, it was such a compliment to me because I've always thought of him as a songwriter. I mean, he's a, a mind-blowing performer and a great singer and entertainer, but he'll always be a songwriter to me. So there was no better compliment than to have another songwriter do my song. It was also doubly blessed because it was it was produced by one of the greatest songwriters this town will ever know, and that's Alan Reynolds. So it was a real, after all those turndowns, it, it, it just couldn't have turned out any better. And you just, but you never know at the time. So it's odd that the, the song is about fate, and, it's, and it, it actually turned out to be a chapter in it. So it's, it's really incredible. Almost like the experience of the song coming to be and coming into the public's consciousness was also kind of fateful. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> there again, there are things that you just have to trust are going to work out however they're going to. There's so many things that happened for that song that I had absolutely no control over, none. The person who did it, the person who produced it, the wonderful musicians who played on the record, the concept of the video, the fact that it almost never came out as a single and would not have come out had it not been for Alan Reynolds going to bat for it because they were already going on to the next album. After Gar's third single on the first record, I think they were going to go on with Friends in Low Places from the second album, No Fences. And had it not been for Alan interceding and taking the head of the record label to see Garth in concert and see him sing it, that convinced the label head to say, well, all right, we're going to put it out. It might not have ever happened. Even after it got that far, there again, so many things had to happen that I, I was totally out of the loop on. I've always said, I mean, if, if this was something I had planned and masterminded, then I'd do it every Thursday. I mean, because that's just not the way it is. Some things just have a life of their own. What do you strive to achieve with your songwriting? I uh, was very lucky when I moved here. I went to a, one of these big get-togethers. They held, held it at a big hotel here in town, and they had all manner of big wigs, the record label heads and big publishers and big artists and big managers and big songwriters, and they all got up to the microphone and, and gave their two cents worth on how it is you succeed in this business. And I remember as the day went on, I just got more and more confused. And then towards the end, when I was just about ready to leave, I just totally confused, a gentleman by the name of Dave Loggins walked up to the microphone. And Dave is one of my favorites. And, I mean, please come to Boston and a, a thousand others. And Dave walked up to the microphone, and the only thing he said was, write something you're proud of. And that, mm. that was the sum total of his speech. And then he turned around and walked off. Wow. And, and I, I said, that's what I came here to hear. I finally heard something that I can identify with that makes perfect sense. And so, if anything, I don't always achieve it, but that's certainly what I shoot for when I sit down to write a song. I mean, you figure this thing could get recorded and could be around for a long time. If you're embarrassed of it, you're going to be embarrassed of it for a long time. I mean, you may pay some bills with it. Ultimately, your name's going to be on it. And if you're going to be remembered for something, I just assume be remembered for something that you could say you were proud of being a part of. I don't chase the radio. I don't, I've never been able to sit down and say, I'm going to write a song for so-and-so. I think me and every other writer, you just sit down and you try to write the best song you can on that day mm. and hope for the best. Because there's so many things that stand in the way 
once that song is cre- created, there's an army of people standing between you and success for that song. So the one thing you do have complete control over, though, is the creation of it. You can't say what's going to happen after the fact, but you can certainly have full say over what happens at the moment of creation. If this is possible to answer, could you pick a song that you're the most proud of, of the ones you've written? Well, I'd have to put the dance on that list, mainly because of all that it represents. And I'm so grateful for how many people know that song and for being able to, it has is, it is opened so many doors. I have a song called May You Find Your Way that has never been recorded that I'd have to say would have to be on that list because of the subject matter. I, it's about my children. That would have to be on there. And then, you know, truly, the next one that you're working on has to be on that list as well because you hope that'll be the one. There would be no point of going on if you said, well, that's it, I'm, that's the best I can do, I'm, I'm done. So I think on that list you'd have to put to be announced. You're still shooting for the one that will even will truly be the big one. Otherwise, there's no point in getting up in the morning. Tell us about the song, The Change. That song was written long before the Oklahoma City event and catastrophe. And I got together with a writer here in town named Wayne Tester, who he had written this melody. It was a complete song. And back to that old school way of writing, I said, well, let me see what I can, what I can come up with lyric-wise. So I wasn't wasting his time. I mean, I rode around for weeks and weeks with that CD in my, my truck writing lyrics to that melody. We never once sat down together. It was truly old school. One person wrote the melody, another person wrote the lyric. The one conversation we had about it was our mutual admiration of, of Curtis Mayfield and because we wanted to hopefully write something in that vein. I mean, no one will ever write songs as well as he did, but just something hopeful and a celebration of the good things Curtis was a man who made his entire living writing songs of love and faith and hope and peace. And, I mean, it's certainly a a nice target to shoot for, whether you hit it or not. That was the genesis. That's what we were talking about. And we talked about just songs of his that people get ready and things like that that just speak of hope. And so that was the genesis of it. And I I worked on that lyric for a long, long time. And then got back together with Wayne, and we made a, a demo recording of it. And Garth had it on hold. I was thinking about cutting it, and then I think when the Oklahoma event occurred, it seemed like a, a call to arms, the message of that song, that in the face of all this. I mean, it was one of the worst days in American history, but it, it certainly brought out the best of so many that refused to yield to cynicism and hate and whatnot so uh, that's how that song came about and just it was written long before all that that occurred it just like some songs i mean like so many songs they take on a different meaning at different times in your life and that's where that came from what do you think about the future of songwriting do you think songwriting has a bright future (laughs) well I hope so, Paul. Invariably, like I said, you turn on the radio every day and you'll hear something. Every once in a while you go, wow, now that's really good. Why didn't I think of that? 
And so as long as that continues to happen, it still is happening. In that respect, I think it's got a good future because there's, you figure there's new minds being born every day. Somehow they, they managed to, you know, take these 12 notes and 26 letters and continue to put them in a constantly evolving arrangement and pattern so that they come out to be a, a new song that yesterday wasn't here. What about the songwriters that are out today? Has there been any recently that have caught your ear that you've thought, this could be the next the next great songwriter? Oh, there's, there's so many out there. I mean, that have really come on as singer-songwriters, too. You know, Michael Buble and people like that that exploded on the scene, and they're songwriters and they're performers. And, you know, living in Nashville, you go out, you can't help but you go out and you, you're going to see people who just moved here that are really good. And it's inspiring, and it's also humbling, and it's, you know, to see. But, yeah, I mean, there's any number of people out there that are that will get up and work every day, and, you know, every once in a while they... They come across that, that pearl, and it manages to find a home. What is the best thing about being Tony Arana? <laughs> being married to my wife, Jamie. Well, we've been together for 31 years, and we have two wonderful daughters who are both very bright, and they're good gals. And so that there's, and I was very blessed to have had a, a wonderful mother and father for many years. That above all else, is the rest of it is just gravy. Tell all the listeners there about your website, so if anybody would like to find out more about you, they can visit the website. Absolutely. It's just com, and it has a list of where I'm playing. It was good to see you down in Atlanta this past weekend, Paul. It has a discography there of the songs that I've, been, that I've had recorded and where I'm playing and a little bit about my history and com, and certainly hope that uh, some, some folks will check it out. And that's A-R-A-T-A. And for my last question, for anyone who's listening, wherever they are, what would you like to say to all the people who are listening in? Most of all, thank you for your support of the arts. Whether you go out and buy CDs or you go out and or you download songs legally and or if you show up for a live performance. I mean, most of all, I mean, above all else, I thank them for, like I said, supporting the arts. Well, sir, I appreciate this interview very much. Well, Paul, likewise, and good to talk with you, and I look forward to seeing you again in the future. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Paul Leslie. Thanks for listening. Be good.